Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Of Course edition of Slate Money, the weekly guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion and I'm coming to you this week from Fusion's global headquarters in Miami, Florida. On the show this week, we are going to start with a segment idea from one of our listeners. More on that in a minute, but Scott Means, are you out there? Get ready. That discussion will carry us nicely into a look at Herbalife and the quote-unquote death blow that a certain steely-eyed hedge fund manager was supposed to deal it this week. And we'll also talk about so-called inversion deals and whether we should just abolish the corporate income tax already. And like we do every week, we'll close with our numbers lightning round. But first, let me introduce our regular guests who are still in New York City. Kathy O'Neill, head of the lead program for data journalism at Columbia University is the first. Hi, Kathy. What's your number this week? Hi, Felix. My number is 394,000. Hmm. I like that number. Thank it's you. Got a, it's got a certain heftiness to it. Yes. I would, I will, I'll give that number a... Ooh, Seven out of ten. Wow. Um, Jordan <laughs> Weissman, Slate's own money box columnist. What's what's your number? Are you higher or lower than 394,000? Lower. It doesn't have quite the same heft. I'm at 104,000. 104,000? Yeah, yes. I'm only going to give that one like a, a five out of ten. Sorry. Oh, thank you. Um, way to neg me, Felix. <laughs> <laughs> And and my number this week, I, I wasn't expecting to be the smallest, but I am the smallest. My number this week is... 2,134, and um, 
personally, I'm giving that a 10 out of 10 because I think that's an awesome number. And I'm the host, so I get to be nice to myself. Wow. But enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> we're going we're gonna to move swiftly on to um, an awesome email that we got from Scott Means, who is here with us in spirit, if not in the studio. He emailed us to suggest that business reporters are often too hesitant to say that the emperor has no clothes with respect to certain companies. I'm going to give you a little bit of what he wrote in the email, because it was a very good email. He said, to me, the world of business reporting is filled with a bunch of cheerleaders. We are treated to both sides as if just telling the truth would ruin the reputation of any media outlet that told it. One of the reasons that we have colossal failures like Enron, MCI, AIG, is that we don't really have much truth-telling. He went on to say that I wouldn't mind an of course segment, and he gave a few examples of what he might like to hear on this of course segment. He said, of course, the Fed pumping so much money into the coffers of the banks is going to have bad long-term consequences. Of course, he said, Apple stock is too high. Of course, he said, Sears and JCPenney are going to be out of business within five years. Of course, of course, of course. So, Kathy um, and Jordan, before we weigh in on those individual of courses, do we agree that business journalists aren't critical enough and that we spend too much time um, doing what Jay Rosen of NYU would say is opinion on shapes of earth differ journalism? I mean, of course, yes. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to echo his statement that they're they're cheerleaders for the most part. But it's actually not my biggest gripe about um, like if you listen to Bloomberg Radio, like it's not my biggest gripe about the analysts that they interview. My biggest gripe is that they are they don't know what a prediction is. They just don't know what a prediction is. And w- w- the first thing you learn when you work in trading and at a hedge fund or any place where you trade is that you don't just say Apple's too high. I, I, I reject that um, that c- the concept of that sentence because. It's not a prediction. I mean, it sounds like a prediction because you're thinking, oh, Apple's going to go down. But an actual prediction is something that has a time limit. Like you say, Apple will be down by this much by this time. At the very least, you have to say by this time, even if you don't say how much it's going to be down. If, if you're recommending someone buy a stock, that is worthless unless and until you tell them when they should sell that stock. That's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, and Everybody has time limits. Everybody has time horizons, and possibly with Warren Buffett as the one exception because he just literally has so much money he doesn't have to worry about it. So he thinks about the long term. Nobody else thinks about the long term, and nobody else has that that uh, you know opportunity. The, the question of stock prices to one side, Jordan, uh, business journalists in general are a little bit hesitant to come out and say what they think. Well, I think that I think that's true to a large degree, and he's actually getting to a, a broader issue, not just a business journalism, but all journalism, it, there is the, the view from nowhere issue that Jay Rosen talks about, this uh, kind of uh, you know sense of, of impartiality, impartiality or whatnot. But also, um, there, there's kind of this inherent uh, del- a problem that comes up with beat reporting, where you have to get to know sources very, very well uh, over a long period of time to really do a good job and get information from them. And after a while, you, there, there's a degree of journalist capture. You sort of come to your views tend to reflect the views of the industry and the consensus of the industry insofar as not necessarily just saying what you think, but also calling BS on a company. It can become very, very hard for someone who's in it day in and day out, just because, not because of anything nefarious or 
a lack of desire to, but just because of the subtle way um, your your perception of things changes when you're covering them. Um, that said, I do think it's also funny because Enron was uncovered largely by a bunch of Wall Street journalists, uh, Wall Street Journal reporters who dove into the numbers and called BS, not ju- you know just by themselves. No, but- I, I'm going I'm to completely disagree with you on that one. Okay. Enron was not discovered by journalists, certainly not at the Wall Street Journal. It was at Fortune, but it wasn't even really discovered by journalists at Fortune. It was discovered by Jim Chanos, who's a short seller who discovered the fraud at Enron, who documented the fraud at Enron, who then handed it all over to, I believe it was Bethany McLean at Fortune, and said, here, Bethany, look at all of this documentation. This is pretty compelling. And Bethany is a very good journalist, and she didn't just take him at his word. She checked it all out, and it checked out, and she published the piece, and that was what caused the end of Enron. But really, the information came from Wall Street and from short sellers, not from journalists, uh, you know, who independently discovered it. Okay, well, then I I will certainly defer to you on uh, the history. I seem to have misremembered, uh, at the very least, the publication. But also, I think it it reinforces, actually, the original point I was making, which was that you come to reflect the views of your sources, in a way. Um, And so I I guess, uh, uh, sad that I've probably been corrected here, but also thank you for furthering my original point. And if you want an example of that, just look look at Andrew Ross Sorkin at the New York Times and who like almost almost complains that the, you know, Citigroup settlements are too high and things like that. Captured. Yep. Well, I I, I might agree with him on that one, but we will come to that maybe some other time. I, I want to do I want to quickly run through this list of Scots of courses, though, because I think what this does is that although all of us have a few ideas in our head of things which are obviously true. Um, the things that we have in our head of things which are obviously true don't really overlap very much. And I don't think that any of Scott's of courses are actually obviously true at all. Um, I think that the Fed pumping money into the banks is obviously good for the banks, but I don't think that it's necessarily going to have bad long-term consequences. No one really knows what the consequences are going to be, and they might be entirely benign. We actually I talked about that, that for a lengthy episode recently, yeah, about the ambiguity. Um, I, I, I think that Apple stock is perfectly reasonably priced, actually. If you look at its P ratio, Apple is making an insane amount of money, and companies which are that profitable should be priced accordingly. And I and as for Sears and JCPenney, like whether or not they go out of business is well, I, I for one don't think that I have any ability to, to have a crystal ball and see that far into the future. How about you two? Um, I, I would like to say, actually, on the Sears and JCPenney, at the very least, it's a prediction by <laughs> Kathy's standard. He at least gave a time frame for it. But I actually, Five years. But, yeah, but uh, I, I, on Apple especially, I actually think that's not an of course at all. I agree with you. I went and looked at the P. I just double-checked Apple's P ratio. It's only about 15, which is the same as Walmart's. Um, so unless you think... And, you know, it's giving a ton of money back to its shareholders. It's massively profitable. Uh, if you, you know, you could talk about it by comparison to Amazon, which I think is somewhere in the 200s. Um, that's a stock that you might say, of course... And even then, you can have an argument about it. So, yeah. To, to be clear, what this means, a P.E. ratio of 15, without, you know, to, to explain the jargon here, basically means that if you buy Apple stock right now, and Apple profits never go up a single cent from where they are today, then in 15 years, you will have basically got paid back what you, what you paid in, in terms of Apple profits. And a 15-year repayment period in in this era of ultra-low interest rates is really not so bad. I have a couple things to say about Sears and JCPenney, 
just because they're like brands from my childhood. <laughs> um, you know, like I grew up in a, fa- a house where if we like we could afford a Kenmore like appliance, that was like good news. And it was a, a real um, investment that was going to, you know, last us for years. I have, you know, I was happy when Land's End and Sears got together. I was sad when they split. I think Land's End is... Um, strong. I use Lancet for my kids' clothes. I'm like one of those moms who doesn't want to go out to go shopping, so online shopping works. Um, I have a, a good feeling about Sears. I looked at the stock price. It's lower than it was right before the crash, but it was higher than it was before that. I mean, I don't really see what the argument is for the five-year um, death of Sears. On the other hand, JCPenney, with its like terrible um, former CEO, Ron Johnson, who was like trying to make J.C. Penny into something really fancy that was just a failure, and it lost customers, and the stock price is is totally dead, and I could totally see J.C. Penny die. So I'm I'm actually okay with those predictions. I disagree with with Sears, but I think at least well, that's Sears, a prediction. Sears is is basically a hedge fund masquerading as a retail chain. It's you know it, it's being run with a huge amount of incredibly sophisticated financial engineering in terms of stock buybacks and. Um, sale and leasebacks of various properties, and 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 you really can't tell anything about the future of the retail chain by looking at the stock price because the stock price is entirely a function of crazy financial engineering. Well, they also but, have property though that's worth a lot of money. I mean, it, or they do, or they don't, or they're trying to sell it, right. or they, or it's property in shopping malls, and property in shopping malls isn't really worth anything anymore because nobody wants suburban shopping mall property. True. It's <laughs> it's a it's a long argument, but in any case, I think we can probably agree that although there are things which seem obvious to all of us. Um, these particular things, which seem obvious to Scott, um, don't seem obvious to us. And it's hard to get consensus on these things, which is one of the reasons why journalists maybe tread a little bit gently um, when making bold predictions. But let me stop that and segue, um, or rather keep on Scott's email, because the whole reason why he sent us this email is he said the main thing that was jumping out at him from the news was, quote, of course, another one of his, of course, of course, Herbalife is a Ponzi scheme, um, which is an interesting statement. Um, But Jordan, tell us what on earth he's talking about. What is Herbalife and why might it be a Ponzi scheme? So... Herbalife, for those who are not familiar, is a company that makes and sells, nominally sells, uh, weight loss and nutrition supplements that are going to magically shave off pounds. Um, And it's a multi-level marketing company, which is a fancy way of saying it works on the Avon system. It works on the Amway system. Basically, they sell – they get individuals to – sign up as distributors and they convince people to try and sell their product, their nutrition, nutritional supplements to other buyers who most of the time aren't actually buying the supplements. They're just convincing other people to join in and sell them. And so, you know, again, it's, it's Avon. We, these things have been around for a long time. Um, and there is a multi-level, you know, it means the same as pyramid, but we need to be a bit careful because pyramid schemes are technically illegal, although multi-level marketing schemes are technically not illegal. And I guess the big debate over Herbalife is what on earth is the difference between a multi-level marketing scheme and a pyramid scheme and a Ponzi scheme, and which one of those three is it? And that is that is the debate. And so what, why we're talking about this uh, this week is because back in 2012, uh, Bill Ackman, the uh, guy who runs a very successful uh, hedge fund, known as Pershing Square 
Square Capital Management. It's a $14 billion hedge fund unveiled that he had a $1 billion bet against Herbalife, which he considers a pyramid scheme. Um, and as a, so he was making his $1 billion bet, which he was actually saying he was going to donate the proceeds to charity if it paid off. Um, but it has become this crusade of his. And, and some Bill Ackman, by the way, doesn't know how to make a bet which isn't a crusade. He's <laughs> natural yeah. crusaders. He, he kind of has a, a John Boehner thing going where he has a habit of, of breaking into tears in public. Um, but it's, you know, so it, this has been going on since 2012, and he's been essentially trying to convince the world that whatever's going on at Herbalife is, uh, is illegal. Um, and it, certainly there's some, you know, slightly shady things about it. I mean, it's a nutritional supplement company. The science isn't, doesn't seem to be very good, to say the least. They do things like sell weight loss supplements in Ghana. Um, <laughs> well, okay. Uh, but, but so the point is, this week, he decided he was going, he told the world he was going to give the present, most important presentation of his career and deal a death blow, quote unquote, to Herbalife. And by most people's accounts, uh, even though he did compare the company to the Nazis, Enron, the mafia, uh, and managed to go after Madeleine uh, Albright, I think, because she appeared at one of their events, uh, he did not, by most people's assessments, deal death blow the company, considering its stock was rising during his presentation. I, look, I, I just want to say for, <clears throat> for the record that I love this man. <laughs> yeah. just Bill Ackman? For, yeah, I totally love that guy. I want to invite him to my house for a party. I just want you should. Yeah, He'd give an awesome toast. I mean, right? Like, the guy is so <laughs> dramatic. Um, and, you know... It would go on a bit. This speech was three hours yeah. long. I think most people were asleep. <laughs> I could talk about how much ended. I love him for three hours. One of the things that I love about him is that in a couple years ago, I think in 2012, he hired some people to write letters, um, you know, hired people who, like, supposedly represented the Latino population in this country to write letters to ask for an investigation into Herbalife. And it was, like, not just one letter, but, like, four identical letters that were sent. And then when the New York Times investigated, a lot of the people who had putatively signed the letters couldn't remember signing them. Oh, wow. It was, um, he also paid civil rights organizations at least $130,000 to help him with his campaign. This, this does raise the, the... He says that he spent $50 million on this campaign. Well, He's open about the fact that he is throwing unbelievable amounts of money at private investigators, at pressure groups, at anyone. And all he wants is one thing. All he wants is for... FDA to come out and prosecute Herbalife as being a pyramid scheme. If that happens, then the stock goes to zero and he makes a billion dollars. And and one of my favorite parts of this whole story is I read this article about it, about his like um, three-hour death blow to Herbalife this week. (laughs) Um, Three-hour death blow. That sounds like (laughs) that's a great band name right there. And and there was like a reader comment, and I usually usually reader comments amuse me, but this one really made me laugh. It says, you can be right and be bonkers at the same time. Like, I feel like he's absolutely I love the right. idea of a three-hour death blow. My, yeah. It reminds me of <laughs> one of my favorite artists, Douglas Gordon, has this thing called 24-Hour Psycho, where he takes Psycho and he slows it down to 24 hours. Wow. <laughs> you know, the amount of time it takes Janet Lee to die in the shower is still less than the amount of time that Bill Ackman and spent I, I, I mean, I went death to, blow. I went to the website for Herbalife, and it doesn't say anything about dieting. You know, it just it's pure, like, make your life better marketing. You know, it's like, and it's selling to vulnerable people. People, poor people, and you know it is scummy. It's, there's no question about it. Even if it's not technically illegal, it's certainly scummy. And Ackman is like right, and he's also totally nuts. Um, I, I just want to say though, th- this does bring up, um, aside from the three-hour death blow, a, a general th- uh, this bigger issue of uh, hedge funders trying to 
push the right push Washington or push regulators to come down on companies that they're shorting. This this is you know this is I, I don't know if it's a growing issue because there's just a few examples that come to mind. Uh, the most prominent being Steve Eisman uh, going after for profits, and I'm I'm kind of wondering if he's making money on for profit co- universities. For profit universities, excuse me, and I'm kind of wondering if he finally made bank on Corinthians collapsing. Uh, someone should check in on that. But um, I hope he did. <laughs> but I uh, but it is interesting that I mean this is probably I think this is the most prominent example of it by now. I think this is this is going to symbolize this kind of approach. Well, this, to this is prominent not only because Bill Ackman is spending ungodly amounts of money on this crusade, but also because he has some incredibly big name hedge funds betting against him, That's like true. Dan Loeb and Carl Icahn, who have taken the opposite side of the trade and so far are winning. That they've made money on herbalized stock, stock going up. So this is a real clash of the titans, and there's this famous. Um, phone call on CNBC between Carl Icahn and Bill Ackman, which I would recommend you all go out and listen to because it is great entertainment. I do think you're right, Jordan, that, that this is a fascinating development. And in principle, I'm in favor of it, I think, because as we saw with Enron, um, you know, and uh, the, the short sellers really are good at coming up with compelling information. And if a short seller comes up with compelling information and they hand it over to regulators or the public, then the regulators or the public should should do something about it. I'm going to disagree. I mean, I agree that short selling should be allowed and it's good and it it adds information. But I think he crossed the line when he hired people to write letters. Oh, I'm not not defending Bill Ackman at all. I'm I'm defending in principle the idea that short sellers should be able to influence regulators. Short sellers, but they should In this this particular case, I agree. I completely agree with you, Kathy, that Bill Ackman is completely bonkers. And um, to Scott's point of whether whether Herbalife is a Ponzi, which is highly illegal, or whether it's a pyramid scheme, which is illegal but not as bad as a Ponzi, or whether it's simply a multi-level marketing scheme, which is not illegal but is sleazy, these are distinctions which are (laughs) not necessarily particularly clear-cut. I think it's not a... Ponzi. I think it's not a Ponzi because he's not because Herbalife is not going out there, um, you you know, promising to make people fabulously wealthy. It's saying like you know, you work, you can make a decent living, but it's not saying we will you know. I think it's your money overnight. It's a a transparent um, pyramid scheme. Yeah, but everybody knows it. Yeah. And frankly, um, I don't think any of us, least of all Bill Ackman, really understands the difference between um, a pyramid scheme and uh, multi-level marketing scheme. There, there's obviously some kind of a difference in the eye of the law, but it's a very subtle distinction, and it seems that maybe Bill Ackman called this one wrong. But <laughs> enough of... Um, thank you, by the way, again, Scott means for writing to us, and we encourage all of our listeners to do just that. Um, the address is slatemoney at slate.com, and we will talk about what you write to us about. But we are going to go back to... Our own ideas. Um, Kathy, <laughs> talk to us about the corporate income tax. Right. Well, <clears throat> what you've seen uh, develop very recently, um, and it, it, it's been evolving for a while, but you've seen many recent examples of like big corporations sort of changing, moving their headquarters to like to Ireland in particular by just buying up another company so that they could get um, lower their corporate tax. It's, it's called inversion. Is that right? Yes. And it's a problem. I mean, it's a problem because big corporations avoid taxing. Um, but it's uh, it's also a problem because only big corporations can avoid taxing this way. It's, you know, so like small corporations 
don't get, you know, it's not worth it to them. They don't have fancy enough lawyers. So what you see is the development of like a two-tier system in the world of, of companies, which favors big companies. And we already have enough big companies. Um, we don't need more power for big companies. Um, and that's what's happening. Um, so that's the first thing to, I, I mean, I think that's, I'm just trying to make the argument that the corporate tax system is kind of broken because the biggest fish just, just swim away. The second thing is that it's not even clear when you do corporate, when you, when you tax corporations, like who actually pays for that tax. Sometimes it's just, you know, the cost is passed on to the, to the um, customers. Other times you think, oh, you know, the uh, executives, you know, get it out of their salary. But, you know, when you think about it long enough, you just realize it, you know, in some sense, you're giving too much credit to the corporation as an individual. Um, why, why are we why are we thinking of corporations as entities that need to be taxed? Why don't we just l- let corporations not get taxed and just tax the shit out of it, like the actual individuals getting paid by the corporations? That's what I want to do. Um, so I, I, I do. Have so, a so wait. So, so, that, so to be clear here, Kathy, you are coming out. And proposing that on the one hand, the corporate income tax be reduced from its current level of 35% to zero. Um, and on the other hand, that we increase personal income tax to make up for that. Yeah. And, and, and the, the point, the, 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 which I should have, the, the thing I should have tied together is that it's much harder for an individual to get out of in, um, personal income tax than it is for a corporation. Like, a, I mean, I'm not saying it's trivial for an a corporation. An individual can't suddenly incorporate in Ireland. Yeah, an individual actually has to rescind their, like, U.S. citizenship, which happens, but it's just not that common. And, and you know, and people just like living in New York or L.A. They like living in this country. So I'm just and saying... And is it not possible for an individual to, to simply incorporate? I'll be like, I'm not Felix Salmon anymore. I'm Felix Salmon, Inc. And now I don't need to pay any taxes. That's actually... I, I wanted to bring that up specifically because the theory behind the corporate tax originally was to avoid that situation. It essentially was a way to... Uh, uh, prevent uh, individual tax evasion. The idea was that people would just self-incorporate and suddenly their company would be paying for all of their groceries or paying for their yacht or, or whatever. Um, and, and so that that's where a lot of... And so instinctively, I am actually very sympathetic to Kathy's point. Um, I think that the corporate tax would be... I mean, let, let, let's, let's be clear. We can't just get rid of the corporate tax and not get anything. Or, we, we, the, you know, liberals could not just get rid of it and not get anything in return. It's about 9% of the of federal revenue. I mean, it's a huge chunk of money. Even, it used to be a lot more. It used to be a lot more. But even with the amount of, you know, complex evasion that goes on or kind of complex accounting that goes on that lets companies, you know, stow their profits overseas, it's still important. Um, so if we were able to replace it with another tax we wanted, or maybe even just capital gains, since that tax is investors, who a lot of people think are the ones essentially paying the corporate tax, that might be a better solution. However, you do get into this thorny, of issue, uh, thorny issue of whether or not people would just start self-incorporating and invading, uh, evading that way. And that's a, a long argument. I, I've been in you know, discussions about it. And some people are very, you know, I, I've talked to Megan McArdle, for instance, at Bloomberg, and she's very convinced that, you know, companies have to uh, submit to, uh, paperwork about what they're spending on and get and, you know, have them checked by accountants and whatnot. And, you know, pe- eventually, if something fishy was going on with enough people and became that regular, we'd be able to clamp down on it. Other people just think that it would be incentivizing that sort of evasion so highly to bring it up to to just knock the corporate tax down to zero that it would we wouldn't be able to handle it, um, which I think what that leads leads to is at the very least we should consider knocking the tax down a hell of a lot lower than it is now because the average effective rate is only 12 percent 
even though, well, that's what the companies really pay, even though our, our, the, the official rate is 35%. Um, and, and so, you know, let, let's be real. Why are we taxing, you know, small companies at the full, this really high full rate when what most companies, big companies are paying is something much, much smaller? And I think what we have right now is, is the way I like to think about it is it's a bit like Harvard tuition, that there's a rack rate, you know, that officially Harvard tuition is $50,000 a year. But in practice, everyone get pays less than that. And in the world of corporate taxes, it's very common for American corporations to complain bitterly that US tax, the U.S. corporate tax rate is 35% while everyone else is 15 or 20. And this is not fair and it makes U.S. companies less competitive than their overseas competitors. Um, but as you say, Jordan, the effective actual tax rate that U.S. corporations pay is only 12%. And while I completely agree with you that it would be vastly preferable to simply lower the tax rate the, the official corporate tax rate from 35 to something, I don't know, call it 15 or 20, which, and then make sure that there was no evasion and get rid of all of the loopholes. I do worry that that's one of those wonderful things which sounds great in theory, but is basically impossible in practice, because these loopholes are so um, deeply baked into to, to the tax code, you would need a root and branch tearing up of the entire corporate tax code and getting rid of every single loophole. And it would be the mother of all fights. But in principle, I'm I'm with you on let's do that. Let's bring the corporate tax rate down to 1520. And, and, and I think I agree with you that Kathy's idea of bringing it all the way down to zero is a recipe for unintended consequences. Yeah, well, I, 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 just, I just do want to compl- make one little moment of venting that when you listen to the so-called Obama's plan for dealing with all this inversion, it amounts to like telling people to be more patriotic. <laughs> I mean, I'm just there. There is a problem in either direction. The the problem right now is again, we have large corporations um, avoiding it altogether. You have small corporations actually paying the thirty five percent. It's a two tiered system, and we have this weird concept of who, um, what, what nationality are you as a corporation if we think of corporations as people otherwise if we make it all in, individual you do have a problem of like can you incorporate yourself and hide money that way and that's a problem because i'm also all for the wealth tax the piketty wealth tax and if you're hiding your wealth in a corporation how are you going to get at that on which note <laughs> um we we're going to move to numbers and we're going to go from low to high, but we're not going to go from low to high in the number. We're going to go from low to high in the quality of the number. And I'm oh, afraid, on. Jordan, <laughs> that since you have the lowest quality number, Wait, you I go have, first. I have, I have a scoring system for your scoring system, Felix. Yeah. <laughs> garbage. Pure garbage. Um, all right. So pick on the millennial. Uh, here we go. Uh, my Actually, my number is very millennial-oriented, too. Uh, my number is 104,000, which is how many albums Weird Al Yankovic had to sell, how many copies of his new album, Mandatory Fun, 
Weird Al Yankovic sold in order to become the number one album in the country. Um, That's in one week. In right? one week, yes. And so that that one hundred and four thousand albums in one week. Yep. Which I is two. There are two points there that I want to raise. One is I think this is just about time. Uh, Weird Al has been a part, such a such a deeply beloved part of the culture for so Seriously. long, and the internet has kind of brought him back to life in a way that uh, by now I think we all we we can all agree he deserves. Um, but second, also is just the fact that with one hundred and four thousand albums, you're going to be the number one al- number one record in the country is uh, it speaks to the state of. Of uh, the music industry, I think, and you're, you're saying that's a place. low number. It's a, it's, it's, it's it, we ain't back in you know uh, 1991. How much, that's for sure. How much money does does an, a Weird Al Yankovic album cost? Is to it make? like ten dollars? Uh, no, no, to oh, buy. to buy. I, you know, I haven't checked iTunes. I'm sure. I'm, I'm assuming it's probably around nine ninety nine, something like that. I have to so, double check. So you know, but it, assuming it's ten bucks, then that's a million dollars a week in revenues. Which, you know, you might think that that's a low number, but most of us would be quite happy with a million dollars a week. Oh, absolutely. And this is a guy who's been, I mean, he has not been, again, I'm sure his back catalog actually does pretty decently. Uh, He just because it's so huge and children for generations have been listening to it now. Um, And, you know, I'm sure people go back and and put Amish Paradise back on (laughs) for another spin once in a bit. But it's And and uh, also in the age of, of streaming music. You know, I think we're clearly moving away from a world where people buy music and towards a world where people stream music. And his videos from this album have been played millions of times. And every single time one of those videos is played, he gets money. So he's making a lot of revenue, which has nothing to do with album sales. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, At 100%. Does he tour? Um, yeah, he tours. Oh my god, I got to bring my kids. They love him. Yeah, I still have, <laughs> Kathy, I still have very number? vivid memories of listening to him like at summer camp. Doctor anyway. Demento, <laughs> <Yeah>. remember that? <laughs> um, my number is three hundred ninety-four thousand. It's very much not a millennial number. It's very much an Occupy number. That's the number of arrests in New York City last year. Um, and just to make the point that it's, you know, which I read on the New York Times this morning, it's thousands, tens of thousands more arrests than happened in nineteen ninety-five when um, the the murder rate was three times higher. So we have, what we have is like violent crime rates plummeting and we have very low level offenses um, being, you know, cause for arrest and uh, marijuana, stuff like that. And, you know, and it's it's crazy. Although maybe maybe we can just invert the causality. Maybe all of these arrests are causing the decline in crime. That's the broken windows theory, right? Yeah. So the broken windows theory it became uh, very popular, or kind of got famous in New York around the Giuliani era, was just the idea that if you policed very minor crimes, like you you know if someone broke a window, you or you prevented there from being broken windows in a neighborhood, um, you would prevent larger crimes. Essentially, if you people if you kept people following the small rules, they wouldn't break the big rules. Um, and so, and in a neighborhood with fewer broken windows, you'd have less murders. That was the idea. I'd love to see data on the broken windows theory. It is all about that, which is interesting to me. It's a microeconomic theory that I feel like should be can be tested by now, since we have enough cities that are like broken windows. Let's do this. There's got to be some. There have to be some I wanna, papers on this gonna, by now. I'm gonna let's go, go look. look. Okay, I'll, I'll come back next week. Come back next week yeah. on that one. Look on that. Um, my number to to finish off this numbers round is two thousand one hundred and thirty-four, which is. The number of days that elapsed between September the 18th, 2008, when the Reserve Fund broke the buck and basically devastated the entire shadow banking system um, and showed that the 
money market fund system was incredibly dangerous to the entire uh, global financial system. And this week, when the SEC finally got around to implementing new rules about money market funds, um, not, which don't really affect the money market funds that you or I might have money in, only the big corporate money market funds. Those ones are now allowed to break the buck. Um, it took, yes, 2,134 days just to make this change in the face of unbelievably strong lobbying efforts on the part of the, the funds. And the change only went through on a three to two vote. And it was an unbelievably hard fight. This is depressing. This was an obvious change which needed to be made. This is a weak version of the change that needed to be made. And even this one took from 2008 until today to get made. It's really, really hard to move this global financial oil tanker, even when it's obviously very are, bad. Are, Felix, are you saying, of course, this change should have been made? I'm saying, of course, this. Well, I'm saying a stronger version of this change should have been made, and I'm saying that this change should have been made, you know, in 2009. It should have been built into Dodd Frank. It should have been a no-brainer. And why has it taken another five years? I to, totally to agree it? with you, Felix. No, I don't think you're going to find any dissent. In any case, that's it for this week. Uh, thanks very much to Scott and to everyone else who listens to Slate Money. If you like the show, please consider subscribing. Just search for Slate Money in the iTunes Store. And if you'd be so kind as to leave us a review while you're there, it would help spread the word and increase our listenership and make us very happy. You can write to us, as I said, at slatemoney at slate.com. Please do. We might feature you on the show. And we'll be even better next week. The producers for Slate Money are Stan Alcorn and Tracy Samuelson. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.